Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the fifth episode of this podcast, recorded on Tuesday, November 8th. My normal schedule is to post episodes every other Wednesday. My plan for this podcast is to have at least two categories of guests. The first consists of high-profile lawyers like Alex Spiro, Paul Clement, and Robbie Kaplan. The second consists of individuals with expertise in topics that are important to me and my audience. One such topic is the 2014 murder of law professor Dan Markell. Dan was a friend of mine from college when we worked together at the Harvard Crimson and from the early days of legal blogging when he founded Prof's blog and I founded Above the Law. I've been following the quest to bring his killers to justice for more than eight years here at Original Jurisdiction and at Above the Law before that. For the third episode, I had as my guest Stephen Epstein, author of Extreme Punishment, the chilling true story of acclaimed law professor Dan Markell's murder. For this latest episode, I'm honored to have as my guest Ruth Markell, who has the most personal connection of all to the case. Dan Markell was her son. And like Steve Epstein, Ruth is also the author of an important and acclaimed new book about the case, The Unveiling, A Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and Trial Life. Ruth is a noted author, public speaker, and the president of RNM Enterprises, a leading management consulting firm. She has worked in senior management positions in both private and public sectors for the past 40 years. The Unveiling is actually her 10th book. Some of her earlier works include Moving Up, A Woman's Guide to a Better Future at Work, published by HarperCollins in 1988, and Room at the Top, A Woman's Guide to Moving Up in Business, published by Penguin in 1985. In connection with the Markel case, she has appeared on such prominent programs as 2020, Inside Edition, and Dateline NBC. In our conversation, Ruth and I discussed what the eight years since the murder have been like for her, why she wrote The Unveiling, how she got Florida to pass the Markell Act, an important piece of legislation about grand parental rights, and the latest developments in terms of both the legal proceedings in the Markell case and her ability to see her two grandsons, who were cruelly kept from her for years after the murder. Without further ado, here's my interview of Ruth Markell. So first of all, Ruth, congratulations on the book, which I have read and I highly recommend, and condolences on both Dan's passing and the journey you have been on these past eight plus years. I think one point that you make in the book repeatedly is that this type of situation is not one discrete loss, but it's a suffering that recurs again and again as you go through what you refer to as the trial life. So again, just my condolences and thank you for trying to seek justice for Dan's murderers and also getting legislation passed to help other grandparents. Thank you so much, David. I first of all have to, I have a long thank you to you and a special thank you to you because I know you've written so much about Dan's murder and I know that you know him too. And whatever you've written, first of all, is very accomplished and it's very thorough. And I really appreciate sort of your hands and eyes on the case because we always need people who really know what's happening rather than just reporting you know, sort of in separate incidents. So I, I really, really have a lot of 
gratitude to say to you and very, very, right? So, and, and really on the part of the family, it, it isn't just me, but it's all of us who want to thank you. Um, no, no, really. It's the least I can do. And as I've written before, I knew Dan. I knew him from college when we worked on the Harvard Crimson. And then we reconnected again as bloggers when he founded the extremely successful Prof's blog. And I started Above the Law. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, and I know you've talked about this in past interviews, many of us know Dan as a brilliant legal scholar, as a prolific blogger, as an academic. But what can you tell us about his childhood? What was he like growing up? I think that some readers will be interested in hearing that maybe he wasn't what we expected. No, not at all. I think if anybody had any contradictions from their later life to their earlier life, it would be Dan Markell, the late Dan Markell. Dan, he was a bum when he was younger. I, I, he was Dennis the Menace at his court. Very high energy, very, very high energy as a child. He never liked normal toys. His favorite objects at 18 months, two years, you know, was a pail, like a mop and pail type of thing and a stepladder. And the stepladder was his favorite toy. Not that he would go and he was really young when he would do it. He would, you know, go up in the kitchen counter not to look for cookies, like, you know, many kids go in into the pantry, but really I think the challenge of climbing it up and climbing it down and so forth. We lived in Montreal first. We're Canadian. Many people don't even know that we're, that Dan was even Canadian. And there's a lot of places that write that he was born in Toronto, but that's not really true. So he was born in Montreal. We lived there till he started school, kindergarten, when he was five, and then moved to Toronto. And he was still like at the first few years of school, even until eight, nine years old. And funny story is the school had an aptitude test in grade three. And they called me and they said, you know, we had the highest score in the school, not only the highest score in the school, but the highest score that we ever saw, you know, from, the, from this aptitude test. And then she said to me, like bluntly, she says, why is he only getting A minus or A? You know, like, so, so like, what's problem if he's not performing at this high peak? So I said to her, it was a very funny conversation with the principal. I said, you know what? Wait another year. I, I promise you by when he's nine or 10, he'll settle down because he read all the comics from when he's five or six or his reading. His skills were there, but you know, it was a little bit, uh, wandered off the high energy, which really was, as you know, the, the trait for the rest of his life and so forth. So he really got serious about nine, 10 years old. And then he became really not serious in his choice of outside activities, like he skied, he played baseball. But I would say, you know how they use the expression, he settled down. He settled down, you know, around 10, 11, and you could see he was going to be, I wouldn't call it scholarly yet, but that high level of achievement. And then I know, of course, and we all know, of course, about his resume and his credentials. He went to Harvard College. He studied abroad in Cambridge. He went to Harvard Law School. He clerked for Judge Hawkins on the Ninth Circuit. He worked at a very prestigious law firm now known as Kellogg Hansen, and then he went into academia. But as I recall from past interviews, you've said that his success as a lawyer or as an academic is actually not what you're most proud of about him as an adult. That's true. I'm most proud of him really as a father and as what all his friends call the connector part, the friend part. But let me talk about the father part for a minute. He was really amazing. His love for his children was so special. And he would go even to their daycare centers when they were small and he would have breakfast with the kids. He would read, you know, so dad had a strong Jewish identity and he would often at the daycare center request say, you know, this Jewish holiday is coming up. This is Christmas. This is Hanukkah. And he would read stories 
And they really, you know, liked that aspect of him. And he also was amazing because when the children would do any artwork, Danny and his character as a character, he put a clothesline. He had a very open space across his living room. And he put a clothesline up and he hung all their artwork. <laughs> and what was so funny is when some of the students, that was another thing, he invited all, I guess, the students who went with him to the final level criminal, you know, courses and stuff. They would, would always have them for dinner and they were shocked because they thought, oh my, they're coming to the stuffy professor's house. And if they didn't trip over the toys, they were lucky. But right across the room was um, all this artwork. And I used to tease him. He started a new design category called preschool decor. <laughs> so he, he was funny. He, he was really, and as you know, Danny had like, I guess, uh, an academic side, but his social side of him was so, so strong and so much a part of him. But everywhere he went, and he lived in a lot of places. He, you mentioned a few, but he lived in New York. He lived in Tel Aviv. He lived in London, England. He lived in Boston. By the way, he left Harvard. He was never ready to leave. And then he was, you know, in San Francisco, Toronto, Montreal. He always stayed connected. And he used to say, when it's just an expression, oh, my best friend here. So we used to tease him. You have a hundred best friends in New York, hundred best friends here. And, and, you know, and it was true, actually. Unfortunately, it was terrible when he passed away. And I mean, we knew before, but the memorializing was all over the world. So, you know, he was blessed. We were blessed in that whole aspect of his life. So now, fast forwarding a little bit to the terrible events of July 2014, which again, you talk about in detail in your book. What was it like when you heard the news that Dan had been shot? I think you said in the book that it was like an out-of-body experience, that it was just really surreal for you. Right. I had several experiences. The first is numbness. And in the book, I do talk about the purpose of the book. Maybe I should say it now because it'll give you really where I'm going. So I wrote the book, which is called The Unveiling, A Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and the Trial Life. The reason I wrote it and called it, it's the, the title of the book is what's so significant here. So the title of the book is called The Unveiling. In Jewish life, okay, the unveiling is the time after a person is buried and the gravesite has been settled, the funeral is over. And in a period, there's different cultural customs, but we chose about eight months after the unveiling to put a tombstone on the gravesite. Okay, so here's, you know, the stone and on the stone is writing, okay? And we spend a lot of time as a family really writing what's called the inscription. But the Jewish tradition is you leave this piece of fabric covered on the tombstone until the day that you actually have a ritual or a service called the unveiling. And the purpose of me telling you this part first, the first reason, is for me, it wasn't until we had that ritual. So we put the tombstone on, and about five weeks and five times for sure, before we had the formal unveiling ceremony, I needed to go to the site because it was terrible for me. And so why I called it the unveiling, because my real grief process, which is very important, which I want the public to know about, not just me, there's so many school shootings, and I'll come to this in the second part of the reason I wrote the book. But the first part is that was my grief journey, the real deep, deep grief. And before that, I did have what you would call an out-of-body experience. I was numb, 
and I was in a daze. And the next reason for writing the book is more important to the public. And that's really to lift the curtain on what it is to be in a victim experience, okay? And particularly a victim experience in the criminal system. So there's there's two parts, and they're very important in the follow-through of not just my own personal experience. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but there's a term called homicide survivors. Now, homicide survivors are different. This is a different loss, and it's a different trauma than that illness and so forth. And the homicide survivor trauma, it lasts longer because it doesn't get resolved. And in addition to that, it's the violent, sudden finality of the death, which other types of trauma don't have. And even the pathway afterwards is, is very different than other losses. Because now I'll go to the second point, which is the criminal system. And the victim experience of the criminal system with the fact that the psychological component of the trauma is very different, the criminal system doesn't end, okay? And this is, there's no such thing. The word closure, I've said it before. It's a word in the dictionary. All those words are not meaningful because you're dealing now with a psychological factor, which is impaired, let's call it, because of the level of grace and the long-term effect. And the interaction of the criminal system, which is everlasting. Look, here we are, it's eight years, we're nowhere finished. And so it's that combination that really makes this whole experience different. So you've actually just answered some of the questions I wanted to raise. Such oh, as good, okay. Why you wrote the book and why you named it The Unveiling, which I think is a very powerful title. Let me ask you this. I think some readers might not know, but this is far from your first book. It's your 10th. But your prior books were very different. They were focused on business and career and professional subjects. You've just talked about having to relive that pain and reopen that wound. Were you really convinced to write this book, given that it would involve just reliving this trauma that you've just described? No, this was hard. It, you know, I'll tell you how I started to write the book. You're very right. My other books, I mean, we're not talking in the same, we're this foreign language, if you know what I'm trying to say. When you do a personal trauma story, it's a foreign language as to business management books, you know, where it's charts and where it's checklists and, you know, in a whole different kind of process. So how did I write the book and why did I write the book in a different way than the explanation I just talked about was right after Danny's murder, I hate to say the word, we were privileged with the media, as you know well, and you were part of it. There was a tons and tons of things happening. So I, I normally wasn't thinking initially of anything like this kind of book, but I did have, you know, so I'm a little older, so I had a box and I photocopy and print, you know, nobody does that today, and, you know, to the same way, but I got this box got filled up, which I, gave me a chronology. I mean, I could get the chronology on the internet, as you know, and I did as well, but it was just that an earlier phase and I was not planning this kind of book. I knew maybe I would write a book, but not the level that I wrote the trauma about. And as time progressed, a lot of time actually, because we were preoccupied with the justice system, then it was about a year and a half or two years before the pandemic, which probably was a good thing because I used the pandemic to write, I have to tell you that. So in the period before, I started to feel, you know, I have a message. I guess it's because I've written before or whatever, but I started to feel really I have a message about 
you know, victims and trauma and grace. And there's not that much out there and not that much with a personal story. So then it, that was the real sort of, how would I call it, the, you know, the fork in the road. And I decided, okay, now it's serious. You know, then, you know, as you, you would know, you, you go about, you got to get a publisher, an agent, you know, the whole thing, which was amazing because it was after Garcia's. And I'm going to tell you that later in the story. I needed to get, I guess, to Garcia and Catherine's trial of 2019. So it was when that was finished, because it relates to even when I started to do the grandparent stuff, but the first part is the writing the book. The trial ended in October and in November, I was in New York looking for starting, you know, the regular routine of pitching and the publisher and, you know, and not the publisher, really the agent at that point. And then the pandemic came and, you know, like January, I live in Canada. We locked down very, very early. You know, so it's different here. We, it's a whole different climate and we locked down much, uh, I don't want to say more seriously, but I would say yes, more uniformly and so forth. So now I, you know, I'm a person who's always doing something like Dan or Dan's like me. I don't know which one is which, but the point is, I said, oh, now I better get this together. And that's what I did. And I really wrote in the pandemic, the first, you know, year, because it was a good time to write. Not smart time, maybe, because you are isolated. You know, I had we saw the kids, my grandkids, Canadian grandkids in that time. But I was, yes, the, the fact is that I was busy and I was occupied, but it was very hard. The first, the first part of the book on the grief and the murder and the finding out, it's more than challenging. Did you find the book therapeutic in terms of writing it and talking to other survivors of homicide? I know, for example, you mentioned in the book you had a a coach, someone who had gone through a similarly awful experience. Did you find some solace in writing the book? I wouldn't call it solace. I, I did have support. Now, the coach was terrific and we had excellent, how do I say it, expertise and legal support, as you know, from Gibson and Dunn and others and a lot of Danny's friends. So we were definitely privileged. I can't tell you, it's interesting, people, that's one of the critical questions today. I can't tell you that the book in any way has, you know, added any closure, I don't use the word, but any help, therapeutic, has there been any, you know, cathartic benefit? Not yet. When we'll come to the grandparent legislation, the answer is totally different. And that's what's fascinating because I'm in the process still of the criminal system. I think because I'm still a victim, look, I'm going to put it out in, I don't know if you want to go into the case, you know, who's arrested and when, but, you know, we went through now Garcia, uh, was arrested in 2016, later was Rivera, later is Catherine McBanoa. We didn't have any trial until 2019. And then there's the appeal of Garcia. Now we just went through, just to give you the current view is really amazing. We just did the trial from a point of view of calendar for Catherine McBanoa. We just finished it, right, in May. In July is sentencing, and Shelley, my daughter, had to do the victim impact statement, I should say. Then following that, so Charlie Addison was arrested just before Catherine McDonough's trial. Then he had the Arthur hearing. Now, well, let's talk about the experience with the different victim liaisons. Now Catherine is appealing and, you know, and there's issues with the public defenders that, so we're still, the public doesn't see all this, right? But we're in full-blown sort of systems and movements and conversations and communications about what's happening. 
And so that's why I think, in all fairness, the book has not yet been as cathartic, let's call it. It's very helpful, and it's very helpful for me now to really go out and talk about the victim experience. But because I think I'm still so immersed, I don't know if I have that, you know, the feeling, you know, that I, I'm still like a student, of, like in school. I didn't graduate yet. I'm studying still, if you know what I'm trying to say. It's continuous. No, and you mentioned that throughout the book. You talk about, for example, even just the different vocabulary words that you're learning as part of the legal process. And the book is interesting. There's an update at the end on the legal proceedings where you talk about how Catherine is about to be retried. And then, of course, now we know she was convicted on the retrial and sentenced. And then, of course, since the publication, there have been a series of developments. For example, denial of Charlie Adelson's bail request. This is the so-called Arthur hearing under Florida law. How would you say you feel in a general sense, given the state of developments right now? You have three people who have been convicted and put behind bars, and you have this pending appeal from Catherine, but honestly, I don't think it's going anywhere, knock on wood. And then you have, of course, Charlie's looming trial for the first part of 2023. Just how generally, I know you may want to be a little guarded in some of the things you say, but what would you say you just feel generally about where the state of the legal proceedings is right now? I think for us, for me, and because I have the other part of uh, 2022 has been a great year in the sense, and, and maybe I'll explain why it's very, very good. So after 2016, after the arrest, I'm going to go into the grandparent issue for a minute because it relates to why 2022 has been very important. So after the arrest in 2016, you know, Wendy, that's Danny's ex-wife, cut us off from visiting the children. We tried through the behind the scenes, the lawyers and so forth. And we even used the media. Now, just to put it in perspective, we are privileged with the media. But Phil and I never, that's Dan's father. We never went ever when Dan was murdered. Like most parents and most lawyers, they bring their clients out on the public view. And we didn't. We didn't need to because Danny had quite a bit of international claim. He was memorialized, you know, all over the world. And it was really not our way of grieving. However, after we're unable to see the boys' names are Benjamin and Lincoln, Dan's children, and we decided, like, let's try whatever we can to get ourselves some exposure to the fact that we are not able to see these young children. So that's what we did. We went, we were going anyway. I mean, the programs were running, as you know, 2020 had said two sessions, Dateline to two hour sessions. Dateline, the same thing. I mean, there's been, uh, then the podcast came out and so forth. So it's been an unusual journey that can have so much media available to us. Then also, which really is a privilege. So Jason Solomon started Justice for Dan. And he even started, had a petition on Justice for Dan to have people sign. For, and they really were, there were a lot of Canadians, a lot of Americans who basically signed, you know, for us to be able to see the children. Anyway, needless to say that that was effective, but not in us. Like that was, it gave us a voice, but not a change in dynamics, let's call it. Anyway, so what happened was after, this is why I said before, after Garcia's trial, it was October 12th, 2019. I'm in Tallahassee. It's my birthday. And I'm in the hairdresser and this young woman comes over to me. And she says, can I give you a hug? And I don't really know her. I don't recognize her as one of Dan's friends. But I could see, you know, she's his age. She, so I thought maybe she saw me on TV. 
you know, the TV you had every day was uh, something around the case. And then, you know, she told me who she was and, and so forth. We went for coffee. And then she said to me, now, this is really important in the process of grief. I'm going to explain to you what I want to tell you. I was advised by my New York lawyer, Matt Benjamin from Gibson and Van Ruth, you're going to have to write a bill. I'm sitting in Toronto. This is in 2016, after we went out on Dateline in 2020. You're going to have to write a bill. A bill, sitting in Toronto. What do I know in, in Canada? Besides which, although I had advocacy experience in my early, early social work career, but I did not know the American system. And also, we're a little different in Canada. It didn't occur to me even that that's the solution. And then my other friend said, all American, you have to get lobbyists. So I prepped, you know, I'm, I'm getting like the buzz in my ear, but I didn't do anything for three years. And why I think this is important, I'll get back to the journey. The reason it's important because many families that are grieving, they want to memorialize their child. They want to start a foundation. They want to do something, but they don't, you know, break out of it from out of their head, right? So here was my experience. I was sitting on it for three years, but Karen Halpern Cypher says to me and right in the, the coffee shop, okay, what can I do for you like that? And I just blurted out grandparent alienation. And she says, done. So here I'm fortunate that Karen had all of these contacts through her position. At the time, she was a partner in a media firm in, in uh, Tallahassee. And this is now and only in October 2019. And in January of 2020, Karen already organized in the Senate. Jeff Rannis actually wrote a bill, got it passed in the Senate, but we couldn't get it into the other house in 2020. So this is a better part. Try, try, and try again. And in 2021, we decided they'll just look at the language of the bill. There was not an attempt to write any bill. 2022, this is why we're coming back to 2022. Why is it such an exceptional year? So in the first part of 2022, Chris Brosley decided that he would get a representation in the House and the Senate at the same time, and he really organized it. Anyway, the best news in the world, the Senate passed it unanimously, and the House was, I think, I don't remember the exact, I think it was 112 to 3, we'll fix that up later. And in the end, Governor DeSantis signed it in June 24. So that's the first part of 2022 and a really big part of the success that we feel. So the mood is changing is what I'm trying to tell you. Now, the next good part of 2022. So Catherine McBanua was scheduled to have her retrial in February. That was postponed. The word is continued. I love the word continue when it means canceled, but we won't go to law language. <laughs> anyway, and it's till May 16th. Well, in the same period, I get an email from Wendy Adelson. That's Danny's ex-wife, the mother of his children. Ruth, we're making a bar mitzvah for Benjamin on May 14th, two days before the actual Catherine McDonough's trial. And we're inviting you all. That it all means us plus Shelly's family. And so I could be more delighted, right? And what happened was I said, yes, we're coming for sure. And then I suggested, can we have an in-person visit on May 13th, the day before the bar mitzvah? They have, the kids have not seen us now. So she writes back right away. You know what? If you want 
an in-person visit come in April. First, she wrote it on a date. She selected the a Passover date, but then she wrote back apologies. She says, come April 20th. And we said, we're on. We came April 20th. We saw the kids. We had a wonderful visit. Um, we go back to Toronto, like, let's say, uh, 1 a.m. on April 21st. 6 a.m. in the morning, I get a call from law enforcement in Tallahassee. Well, they're not in Tallahassee. Now they're down in the Broward. And they just arrested Charlie Adelson. So in 24 hours, hmm. a lot of children and the case. So 2022, this is the big year, right? For if you, you know, it's, it's an actually important story piece because, you know, families wait and, and certainly us, the waiting and uncertainty are, are really the characteristics of the victim experience. But this is just an example of sometimes when the waiting does materialize into something that's very fruitful. So just to rewind a little bit, you mentioned the passage and the signing into law of the Markel Act, which deals with the problem of grandparent alienation. Can you say briefly to listeners what the Markel Act permits? So the Markel Act, actually, it's not a broad-based encompassing act for any grandparent who's alienated or any grandparent who has difficulty. Florida laws are very restrictive and one of the most restrictive ones in North America. And when considering they have all these elderly people, their grandparent legislation is very, very restricted. And there's a piece in there that people have to understand. The reason it's restricted is because not in other states or provinces, the natural parent in Florida has the right for autonomy and privacy. And that is huge. And that trumps anything else. And it always has to be reviewed against what are their rights. So what happened with the Grandparent Act? When it was developed, it was developed to meet a very specific set of circumstances, which is if one of the partners in the marriage or ex-marriage or whatever, divorce relationship, was deceased, there is deceased, and the other yeah. partner has some civil or criminal findings against them, that gives the grandparents rights to go to the courts and request a visit. And the request is less conditional than under other circumstances because those findings have to be met. So to that extent, it's very restrictive. Having said that, and one of the most amazing things of why I said earlier on, I have to say that having passed this legislation has really given me, I would say I always have hope, but it has given me more satisfaction on a different level. Do you know how many people write to me now asking how to use the Markel Act, telling mm -hmm. me about grandparent alienation? And what's really sad is how many circumstances there are in Florida where there is deceased findings of the one partner and the other person has responsibility and the grandparents have gone back and forth. So there is, you know, some current law about felonies. This is something else, which I did another presentation on, but there are grandparents, places where they can get help. Like if your child has committed a felony, it's not the same. It's not the Markel Act. I have to say, it is not the Markel Act. But the point is, what happens? These children come out, adult children, come out of prison, and then the grandparents have taken care of the kids all these years, and they tell them, bye-bye, Charlie. 
So the grandparents lose out and the children really lose out because that's their, their new family. But those families can get help, not necessarily the strength of the grandparent legislation, but there are places to help them. And also they should know to go to legal aid as well. No, that's really important. And I'm glad you're sharing that information with people. And one of the things that's interesting to note is it's very selfless in a way what you've done because the Markell Act, as I understand it, does not at the current time apply to your particular case. But on the bright side, I do note that very shortly after its passage, I think, you were invited by Wendy to meet with the boys. So I see we're almost out of time, but in closing, can you talk about how much contact you have with the boys right now? Because for those of us reading the book, that was in many ways one of the most heartbreaking things, that for years you were kept away from your grandsons after this horrific event. So can you talk a bit about how often you get to see them now and under what circumstances? We're only at a stage where the door is open, like a crack in the door. We did try to get some Zooms on the boys' birthdays to wish them happy birthday. We were successful. We made other attempts to get visits, which didn't materialize. But just recently, I asked Wendy for a visit in December, and she approved. She confirmed it. So that will be the next visit. So we saw the boys, you know, we had contact with them in April. And now I'm really hopeful that I will get to see them in December. So we're, we're you know, it's a rocky, a rocky ship still. But it's more open communication and although small, but it's working in the right direction. You know, it's very incremental, small steps and so forth. So as you mentioned, 2022 was a big, big year for you and your family. My final question is, what are you hoping for or expecting from 2023, which is not that far away, less than two months away until the start of the new year? What are you looking forward to in the coming year? I'm looking forward to, look, right now, the, I'll put it this way. So the grandparent priority is a little bit, I don't want to say on the back burner at all, but it's lessened. So now we have to get justice in the criminal system, which has always been the competing priority and the different values in the family. Like, you know, is the criminal system more important? Which meaning the, the criminal justice for Dan? And, you know, because we're still looking at it in a, you know, much bigger way. So that's really one of the things. I do want to say that I'm also looking in now and in 2023, I want to make sure that people understand the victim experience and particularly the legal and professional people who help, psychologists, lawyers, clergy, whatever, have to understand the victim experience. And I know like on how can you learn to develop compassion for the victim in all these professions? I, I have like an agenda. <laughs> I guess I'm a person who has agendas. So. This is really because I really think it's an undervalued, and there's a statement, actually, I read this in one of the reports in Canada, but then the term is, the victim is the orphan of the criminal system. And so that's my new challenge. And I hope that there are some, you know, lawyers, legal schools, legal firms listening today. And I have a lot of sort of programs that I would really like to talk about in terms of, you know, an educational format to get you know, the sensitization to what the victim experiences in the criminal system. Well, I think you've been doing a wonderful job of advancing your agenda. I think just in terms of getting people to understand that victim experience and, of course, getting legislation passed to help other grandparents in similar situations. And, of course, spearheading and enduring this long, long quest for justice for Dan's murderers. So, again, 
On behalf of my listeners, on behalf of all of us who knew and cared for Dan, thank you, Ruth, for everything you've done. You are really an inspiration, just how you have endured this tragedy with such dignity and grace and how you have managed to try and find some things positive out of an unspeakable tragedy. So thank you. Thank you very much. Please continue writing. You're doing a great job. (laughs) Will do. I always welcome your articles and your support. So thank you. Thanks again to Ruth for joining me. As I've said before, her resilience and strength over these past eight plus years, as well as how she has used her experience to help both other victims and other grandparents is nothing short of inspiring. As always, thanks to Tommy Heron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com, and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to Original Jurisdiction. Since this podcast is new, please help spread the word by telling your friends about it. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter, if you don't already, over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by your paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast should appear two weeks from now on or about Wednesday, November 30. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.